Hello, and welcome to the ID Talk podcast. My name is Peter Counter, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Fine Biometrics, where April is ID Evolution Month, during which we are placing a featured focus on the cutting-edge technologies and prevalent trends shaping the identity and biometrics industries. That's why, on this latest episode of ID Talk, I'm pleased to bring you my co-host Susan Stover's recent interview with Kevin Trilly, Chief Product Officer at OnFido. Their conversation begins on the topic of a major ID evolution catalyst, the surge in remote work necessitated by the current pandemic. The conversation turns to the specifics of the identity life cycle, and fittingly, the conversation ends with some future gazing on how this ID evolution will affect the post-password authentication landscape. It's a fascinating conversation that provides a sharp picture of the state of identity technology, and I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, here's Susan Stover, Vice President of Digital Content for Fine Biometrics, in conversation with Kevin Trilly, Chief Product Officer at OnFido. This is Susan Stover, VP of Digital Content for Fine Biometrics and Mobile ID World, and welcome to ID Talk. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Trilly, Chief Product Officer at OnFido. Thanks for joining me today, Kevin. Thanks, Susan. Glad to be here. Well, let's jump right in. The COVID-19 pandemic has necessitated a rapid shift to remote work for businesses. And with remote work comes a variety of identity-related challenges. What new identity threats do companies face now that their employees are working from home? Yeah, what a great timely question, unfortunately. But it's really brought to a head a lot of this digital transformation, I think, at the highest level. And with that, of course, comes an identity. So when we start to think about what's going on, you know, I think it's a little bit more than just the work from home question, uh, work from home aspect of this question that that's so important. It's we're, we're living from home <laughs> as people. And so, the, you know, the work obviously is a big part when you start to think of the uh, the business to business context. But we, you know, really would like to think about this more holistically as like our lives right now at this current time of recording the podcast is we're living from home. So as such, you start to bring in both the employee side of our lives, the worker side, and also the consumer side. And we'll, we'll talk about both of those for a few minutes. I think first and foremost, though, what you see now is an absolute reliance on, on workstations for uh, direct employees, you know, and getting us all up to speed, making sure all of the, the policies are in place. And of course, all that requires that we know to whom that those uh, machines were issued to. Sometimes those machines fail, you need to send them off and get them replaced and there's no office to go into and pick them up. So it becomes very important that you're not sending, you know, an, an access point to your company to someplace that you're not trusting. So that's one really simple example. Um, but I think the bigger trend that we're looking at right now is that, you know, I think that this, this uh, pandemic has brought up really two classes, unfortunately, of, of businesses, those that are really affected adversely and those that are, that are affected positively. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate we have a lot of companies in the transportation vertical and what have you that have to either, you know, are suffering because their core business isn't isn't taking up or they're being forced to pivot. So hopefully we can throw some of those on the other side, um, which are businesses that are benefiting right now. And what you're seeing right now is the in addition to core employees working from home is in some cases companies having to take on more contractor workers and also potentially expanding to gig economy type workers where you have people that are less affiliated on a timeframe basis with a company doing specific tasks for companies or, or just whatever it may be, more short-term contract. And in that regard, your workforce is in some cases changing quite a bit. And we've seen this quite a bit with our customer base where you know, that concept of an employee is really being challenged right now. 
And what you're starting to see a lot there are the traditional outsourcing companies in India and whatever that are going through similar things in terms of the, you know, the shelter in place and, and lockdowns. So this is driving a very big new employee onboarding process for a lot of companies. And with that, again, you really bring out this, you know, identity management concept and in particular verifying people with the sake of initiating a working relationship for the first time. So all that, I think, is really the the business side, a couple of the challenges and opportunities that become challenges if not managed properly. And then I think once you get into that world and you start to plug in this living from home concept, you know, the, the requirement on a digital experience now has, is just the only op option, right, for the, for the world in many cases. So with that becomes, of course, all of the services of vetting your customers and end users and bringing them into your services and more on the consumer identity side, you start to see that really, really scaling. And, and we're starting to see that obviously with our core customers, but then new use cases that are popping up that of course we can talk about later around, you know, healthcare and, and just generally people that can't go to physical offices anymore for even essential businesses that, you know, they wanna push a digital first experience, but of course the non-essential businesses where that's your only option to interact. So all that really always starts, all these things always start with, you know, who is the person in which I'm dealing with, whether they're a new employee or a new customer or, you know, a customer that's taking on more services with us. I think that's a really great point. Uh, talking about working, it's not just working from home, but it's also living from home, Kevin. Moving on to the next question, how, how can biometric authentication and onboarding make the transition to remote work safer and more convenient? Sure, yeah. You know, th this is the next step of that question, right? So the, the first and foremost part, I think, is that as you look at more people working remote, more people working in a digital context first, the, the existing threat vectors that go on with, you know, network-based attacks and what have you, you know, really become even more amplified because you've got more people using those services and potentially loopholes of all of our, you know, out-of-date machines or, you know, our Wi-Fi signals are not as controlled as they would be. Maybe some users are VPNing, some are not. All that really just increases the risk profile. At the same point, I think that, that what you're seeing within companies is that the risk profile or the risk tolerance of that profile is, is starting to, to increase a little bit where, where companies need to take on a little bit more risk to enable this to happen, maybe just in the short term before they can get caught up and really fortify some of those things. So I think what you get there is really the, that you've got to use the concept of identity to protect that, this, what we like to say, the front door or the, you know, the coming back in the back door uh, over and over whether it be the, the, the account creation or access creation step, or just the authentication of that coming back to it over and over. Now, when you get to those two processes, especially when you start to scale it really radically, like you're seeing in some cases right now, the user design, the user experience is critical. And so you have to really think about, you can't drive now a bunch of customer service problems because your users can't get into your service quickly or they're losing, you know, if they weren't using biometric, they're, they're losing their passwords a lot or trying to figure out VPN authentication and you know floundering through the one-time password a bunch of times. All of those things are considerations of that ability to now use more secure technology because you have to and protect against that higher risk profile, but you gotta still keep in mind that it's the user experience that is gonna make or break your, your business as it always would. So a couple things that you can play with there obviously are when you, how you use and design the process that uses these technologies, the authentication technologies or the, the verification technologies. 
uh, the degree and, and timing by which you ask them, uh, what happens when a user doesn't go through really nicely to the happy path the first time? How do you manage that user? And so on. So I think that process design concept is so critical. Now, the other part of it would be that when you're using in particular biometric, you've got to know that that biometric was registered at some point to represent it was Kevin Trilly and I'm coming back and using my fingerprint or, or my face. And so the, the, the quality of that enrollment data is very important. So if you did that two, three years ago, that data might be a little stale. And so you might want to go back and re-verify that data now knowing that more and more people are going to be using that as a, as a mechanism. They're not in the office. They're being asked to authenticate to more external services or edge services. So I think the key message here would be is that even as you're using it, go back and look at the freshness of your data because the more that data can represent what we like to say the real identity of the user, the stronger the protection is all the way downstream when you're re-authenticating, is that the user I gave the account credentials to? And that's a different question than, is it Kevin Trilly that I'm creating an account with for the first time? So it just comes down to that freshness of data. The more that data can be really accurate and tied to the real person, then all of your authentication uh, security and, and processes, you take a little less pressure on it. It's, it's a little easier to run those. You don't have to rely on them so much as you did in the past. So I think that's the key message I would, I would conclude with there. And how can remote onboarding and authentication technology like this be deployed across an enterprise in situations like this where many offices are completely closed? Yeah, you know, and that's that's the beauty of a lot of this stuff that it is it is remotely controlled or you know deployed through network technologies. Oftentimes, this uh, technology has two parts: a server side and a, and a device side. All of that can be pushed through uh, mobile device management. Of course, you know, central services can be updated, and just you have APIs that that reflect those changes. So for the most part, all of this can be deployed remotely by its nature, right? It's not requiring you go to an office and show your face or more importantly, in, in the old worlds where you'd have to go to a kiosk or something and scan like we do at the airports, a lot of this is remote technology. So the mobile devices we use and the, you know, the laptops and what have you have everything you need to use these technologies for the most part. And I think that really calls out this. There's always a debate around centralized biometric versus localized on the device and, and localized are getting more more uh, adoption. But in some cases, you need to, to, if you're deploying for the first time, you need some form of centralization to get this out to, a, to your user base. So there's always a balance between the, the, you know, the centralized storage of that information and the convenience by which you can deploy it and manage it. So in this case, the good news is most of this can be deployed very high degree without you know, maybe a few exceptions, completely remote. And so it's pretty straightforward for most enterprises. Onfido is building the new identity standard for the internet. Their AI-based technology assesses whether a user's government-issued ID is genuine or fraudulent and compares it against their facial biometrics. That's how they give companies like Revolut, Zipcar, and Bitstamp the assurance they need to onboard customers remotely and securely. Their mission is to create a more open world where identity is the key to access. You can find out more on their website at www.onfido.com. And now, back to the podcast. Let's get into the specifics of user identity. So much of our surf surface level conversations in this industry are contained to either authentication, identification, or proofing. But all of those aspects work together in a full identity life cycle. Let's start at the beginning. How do you anchor trust in a remote onboarding scenario and why is it an important first step? 
Yeah, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, the, the concept of a real identity is very powerful. And if you think about the initial vetting of an identity as you bind it together, I'm, I'm creating my account for the first time. I sit down, I fill out the form, I use my name, email address, what have you. That process then goes into a confirm your email step and, and what have you, and you do that, and then you're issued the credentials. You've got a username, password that you are going to use, and now the account's created. So that whole binding process is very important, obviously, because it's your first interaction with the business, and you're an unknown quantity to the business as, a, as an end user. So the more you can bring in a real identity in a very convenient way, in a very privacy-protecting way, um, the stronger you have confidence in that when you start to use that identity downstream. So this isn't a situation where you want to go ask every single thing about a person and you know really really do a full background check on every application. It's it's related to the risk profile of the business or the application. But where you are is if you could get that information rather conveniently through a process where you just have somebody show their ID, you know it scans it, it you know removes the information off that, and it automatically fills up the uh, the form for the user. And now you've got that information from a trusted source that you can use that trust to your benefit as the user starts to become a more long-term user and starts to use your service. You know, the flip side would be everything self-asserted and, you know, there's very weak binding to the user, maybe just an email click. That, that's a different beginning step. And if you have that higher level step of a legal identity added into that account onboarding process, now when you're looking at authentication, you're just looking at more anomalies of behavior and you're looking at, you, you have the opportunity to let go of a certain area of focus because you have a higher level of trust. And that's why you can't look at one of these things in just isolation. So uh, the key point here on this is that we really believe in a concept of real identity. And the stronger that you have a verified identity at the point of creating an account, the more it allows you to focus less on the risk profile of the user when they're coming back to use the service over and over in authentication and, and uh, transactional use of the service. So for example, when I'm creating an account for the first time, I fill out a form and I, I look for all the email binding and what have you, and it's all self-asserted information. If instead I can provide a, a driver's license or something and extract that information digitally, have that pre-populate the form for me, I've now got the same information, but it, we know it comes from a more trusted source. And as such, we brought a higher level of assurance to that account right at the very beginning. So now my requirements for doing a lot of the security checks and authentication each time or really the heavy transactional monitoring are diminished you know anywhere from slightly to significantly based on the, the risk profile of what the application is so it's a really important concept in that you need to bring in an appropriate level of security up front of the identity life cycle and again we like to mention that as the real identity and then that complements the authentication process which is the more transactional use i'm logging in over and over again which is really checking to see that those cr the credential holder is the same person each time. So it's a very complementary concept. Finally, the other part is that if I lose my credentials and I need to recreate my account, account recovery is the term, you really fall back on the identity verification process again to reprove that it's the original person claiming access to that account. So once again, you see the relationship between identity verification and authentication and how these all are related concepts. Mm -hmm. And after a sufficient onboarding, how do you maintain trust throughout subsequent user interactions? Yeah, there's a couple points there. I think the the most typical concept here is that what you look at is what's called risk-triggered authentication. And in that case, what you're looking at is for any anomalies that might show up in a behavior of an account, whether it's a they're logging in from a different part of the world suddenly or they've logged in 
uh, you know, five times in the last five minutes, or they've started to immediately move a large transaction through, which is a little bit of an anomaly. At that point, you can step up the level of interaction with the user and ask them again to re-verify themselves. So whether they, you know, the old way was, hey, can you call us and we'll ask you some questions on the phone to, hey, we'd like for you to confirm yourself with a quick selfie, which is the same photo that we captured when you created your account. It's very quick, very simple. And now you have that additional level of service that a hacker couldn't provide unless they had that exact same photo they took. So that's one example. In addition to what we're talking about around identity verification, there's very complementary technologies that I just mentioned that really go hand in hand with helping identify those anomalies. So having a good set of risk analytics is very important so that it can trigger the inputs to those systems when necessary. And then finally, I, I mentioned uh, in the last uh, topic was there's always the situation you need to provide for where the user forgets their credentials or they lose their device and they have to re-maintain or re recreate their um, relationship and to maintain that uh, access to their system. And in that case, you actually have to go back and do a re-verification of the user. So having a good process you can leverage that they went through originally is something that you can go back and make that process very easy on the user and very accurate from a risk perspective. So those are a couple of things that you can do there to keep it going along the way of, of a high degree of trust, but they're all measured very carefully between the user experience of what you're introducing and the core process and the, the additional security you want to get from the, the process. So it's always done in the context of what's the overall process design and, and the risk profile of the user. How does the next gen identity lifecycle end? And what are the best practices in that process for protecting user privacy? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think there's many views on where how it will manifest itself exactly, but I think the principles are all well agreed to. And I think the the thing we can all agree is that we're very tired of wanting to have a central honeypot of all of our information. And as you bring that further along, the concept of remembering passwords for you know hundreds of sites and all that you know there's definitely that will lead to you know some degree of use of biometrics which is even more sensitive data for all of us so having something where end users can maintain their own information be able to selectively distribute that to users upon request with consent is really the inversion of the whole system that we need to have happen so today those systems really exist more centralized, whether it be our credit reports or some of the government systems that we use, to allowing that information to be shared through our own. So some form of device that we own and manage, a personal server, a personal storage space. And then as we need our identity information, we can provide information on demand that maybe represents what they're asking for. I'm a legal adult versus my full birthday. So that concept of selective disclosure is very important. And then, of course, having all the security and privacy that we need in there to allow for those controls to happen. Um, and, and again, the, the danger there is that it becomes a little too granular and too much to manage. So it's got to be very carefully and smartly developed from a user experience perspective, because we can't all of a sudden throw on uh, you know, billions of consumers to get into a very complicated system to manage their identity. It's got to be as simple as what the real world is. You walk into a place they want to check your age you pull out an ID, you show it to them, right? Like that's the concept that we need to realize we're trying to replicate in a digital context where you don't have that same infrastructure in place necessarily. So these concepts we hear about how we deliver that include some of these distributed ledger type systems that allow for that immutability and that very clean separation of private and public information, but also give you that ubiquity and very fast transactional processing speed. So those are the general principles we see. Now those all have to be manifested into the way that we use our mobile devices to authenticate, 
the way that we just, you know, at some point can create accounts with one click by leveraging some of the things I talked about earlier. Those are the systems that need to be in place that allow for that end user ecosystem. In this case, they're called relying parties to accept that credential in a very standardized, safe way. Onfido is building the new identity standard for the internet. Their AI-based technology assesses whether a user's government-issued ID is genuine or fraudulent and compares it against their facial biometrics. That's how they give companies like Revolut, Zipcar, and Bitstamp the assurance they need to onboard customers remotely and securely. Their mission is to create a more open world where identity is the key to access. You can find out more on their website at www.onfido.com. And now, back to the podcast. Is the process we've been talking about enough to finally get users and businesses to abandon passwords for strong authentication? I believe it's already happening. And I think what you've seen with some of the mobile devices of, of at least taking that first step of using our face or our fingerprint to open up our device and then allow that to be the first step of authentication um, is really starting to show that. Now, we need a corresponding network-based model that will also perform in the same way because we don't always have our mobile device with us or not everybody has devices with those types of technologies in place. And we also need something that works with every device and every system and every user from a business perspective. So I think we're well down the path. We're all warming up to the use of our biometric as convenience. And I think that's such the key part of this on the user side. The business side, there's been lots of long uh, established models of the cost of people forgetting you know, their authentication credentials and having to call the cost center. So all that, I think that I think the business side, it's there. The user side is really the big one. And again, if you bring users convenience and then hopefully as a result of that convenience, more access, they're willing to make that trade. And, and I think that's happening already through, uh, again, some of these steps we're taking. So I would agree that we're close. There's still a couple big building blocks that need to be put in place. What challenges still remain when it comes to moving beyond the password? I think what you get to is a system has to work ubiquitously. A username password system is so easy to implement. If you have technology that only works for part of your customer base, you're, you can't deploy it as your only method. You'll fall back on the password. Even the base IDs and those things fall back on a password. So for it to work, it's got to be ubiquitous. You've got to have a recovery system in place where you lose that credential that's stored on the device. You've got to get a way that you can still get back to that and recreate it. It's a very important part. The third area, I think, is if you get into a system that leverages technology, you know, you don't want to have to repeat use that technology and train yourself every time you use it at another site. So having some degree of portability of those credentials that are created have to be in place. Just like we, we can use our driver's license or our passport in many, many places, you really need to have that concept. The password's very easy to use, right? And it gets me into an account. And so, you know, in that regard, it's more of just storage of many different types of combinations of those things. As we get to something that moves beyond the password, um, you need to really have that convenience part in place, the security in place, um, and then the ability to use that very conveniently at multiple places. And I'd say those are the three or four areas that are all kind of moving forward in development. What are the next steps businesses and relying parties need to take to do their part in moving to more trustworthy security? I think with any technology cycle, you have early adopters, you have 
folks that are willing to take advantage of a new technology or market and use it to an advantage, um, you know, get some name recognition as an innovator, that kind of thing. But as part of that, there's a big education trust piece of this market that needs to happen. Identity management is more than just software, right? It, it reflects all of us as end users. There's sometimes a governmental linkage to it. So it's more than just pushing out software and expecting people to use it. There, there is definitely an ecosystem play here. And the ecosystem involves the government and governments around the world globally. So the next steps really involve that working together to, to understand that if we eliminated the need for people to recreate their identity and be re-verified, to then have uh, challenges that you do it again at another site and you wanna just authenticate in, there's a total cost that can be removed from the whole system that could be used more for other things in business value. There's also a gain in security that if you're sharing identity information, much like we share transactional fraud data, the system can become more trustworthy overall for everyone. It'll be harder for fraudsters to keep attacking the edges and finding vulnerabilities and moving and repeating attacks at other sites that they prove at other sites. This is where I think the industry needs to move forward quite a bit is that ability to, to pool together. And this is where privacy rules actually really control it as much for the fraudsters as it does for all of us legitimate people. And so there's a big uh, navigation that needs to happen when you start to talk about identity data and how it can be shared across relying parties and uh, in a global scale. You know, my views are it starts out regional and you start to build regional pockets of this or small ecosystems that, that all service a common uh, business objective. And then it scales out more and more across uh, larger countries and, and larger ecosystems. But it all relies on those fundamentals of technical interoperability, legal interoperability, and convenience for the end users. And how can listeners get in contact with you to learn more about the topics we discussed today? Well, we of course have a website at onfido.com. It's O-N-F-I-D-O.com. We'd love to be in touch with you. We'd like to talk about identity um, and just learn about how businesses are evolving and, and looking forward to, uh, to learning more about those businesses and how they can use it both now and later. Um, you can contact us anytime at info at onfido.com. That's O-N-F-I-D-O. Our website has a lot of great thought literature on identity and we're very uh, advanced in machine learning and share a lot of our thoughts there also in terms of AI technologies. Um, so we'd love to have you come by and visit and always up for a conversation. And so concludes Susan Stover's conversation with Kevin Trilly, Chief Product Officer at OnFido. To learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, visit onfido.com. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Kevin for joining us on ID Talk. And thank you to Susan Stover for conducting the interview. Our podcast theme music is by Logamrad. I have been your host, Peter Counter. Thank you for listening to the ID Talk podcast. Mm-hmm.